Uh, if you'll find that in your Bibles, if you have Bibles on hand, it'll be on the screen as well and you can follow along. We're going to kind of jump around because there are 10 chapters in the book of Esther uh, and we're not going to cover all 10 chapters, but we're trying to cover the entire story uh, during this series. So this morning we'll be reading, uh, this is chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and then we'll jump to verses 17 through 23 to try to expedite some of it a bit. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor, and immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Down to verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins, so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals, in the presence of the king. The word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we ask in these moments that you would um, take what is yeah, a long forgotten story for so many people and breathe new life into it for us. That we might hear you speaking, that we might see you moving uh, among us and in the story of what you've been doing in history and the life of your people. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we begin our series in the book of Esther, right? And, and chances are, if you've been in, around in, in church your entire life, or if you've only been around for a couple years or a couple months, regardless, Esther is probably one of those stories you're not as familiar with. There are a lot of stories you know kind of in and out. You hear us start to read a story and you go, oh, I, I know that one. Esther is not one of those. And for centuries, that's been true of the church. The church, for a long time, just didn't know what to do with Esther. What are we to do with this woman? And so we just kind of sidelined Esther. Esther was kind of left on the bookshelf until we figured out what in the world to do with this story. That was how it went. And at best, people tended to kind of moralize the story of Esther. You know, they tell you the story, it sounds nice, and then they give you some like cliche, memorable catchphrase for how you can better live your life, how you can become better. That's about as much as we tend to get. I feel like that was a little bit of what I got in, in, in like a Sunday school teaching setting. That was the way it happened. But if you, if you ask a Jewish person about Esther, you'll find that's not the case. You'll more likely find that the story of Esther is central to their identity, who they are. And that's because the, the story of Esther is not just a story to them. Esther is not just a character in Scripture because Esther sits at the center of this whole festival they celebrate every single year called Purim. Maybe you're familiar with Purim, maybe you're not. Maybe this is the first you've heard of it, it doesn't matter. If I'm trying to describe Purim, explain Purim, like all I know to tell you is that, that Purim is so much better than, than the majority of holidays we tend to celebrate. Like it's so much cooler than you realize. It's brilliant, right? And if you know anything about Jewish holidays, most of them are, are kind of heavy, right? They come from, from pretty heavy circumstances, at least a heavy story. And certainly the story of Esther has those elements, right? But this celebration, Purim, is all lighthearted celebration. That's all it is. Two days of fun. That's the way it goes. It's the sort of thing I think anybody would enjoy. And one of the elements of Purim is they sit together and they listen to the entire story. All 10 chapters start to finish every year at Purim. But what's cool is they don't just like sit and listen to the story. They actively engage with it. They actively participate in the telling of the story. So the way it goes is, one of my favorite things about the, the whole thing is, as somebody's reading the story, if the villain's name in the story, a man by the name of Haman, who you'll learn more about, when Haman's name is spoken, everybody in the room starts making noise. They've got these little contraptions. They call them groggers, right? And they start making all this noise with them immediately. Can you imagine this? I stand up this morning to read the passage. Maybe this particular morning we're reading from the Gospels. The Pharisees show up to confront Jesus with a question, right? And somebody like shows up with an air horn, right? I mean, it's like a cowbell in the middle of it. It's just, the idea is you want to drown out the name of this villain, this devilish man, Haman. That's awesome. Who doesn't want that? Like this is, this is fantastic, right? And there's so much about it that, that's cool. There's all this feasting. There's dressing up in costumes. There's making loud noises. What's not to like? It sounds like... Um, like Mardi Gras meets Cinco de Mayo meets uh, football. You know, it's like all at once. Like who would not love that? This is Purim. 
How did we miss this one? We have, have tended to take from all these other cultures all the time. We do this a lot. We mix a lot of other people's holidays into our own. Why didn't we do it with Purim? How did we miss Purim, right? And I, I think at some level that, that's the question we have to ask ourselves about Esther's story as a whole. Like how, how did the church miss Esther? How have we missed out on this beautiful story? Why is it that Esther sits unread on the shelf for so many of us? Well, at the simplest level, maybe you notice this, but Esther's kind of full of violence. Uh, it, it's not exactly PG. Um, there's a whole lot of impaling going on in the book of Esther. Maybe you caught that at the end of our chapter today. Uh, I can't tell you offhand the number of impalings uh, in the book of Esther, but let's just say it's higher than your average number of impalings for a Bible story. It, it, it's not the sort of thing you'd want to, to share with your, your children as like a bedtime story, you know? Uh, the king, uh, who's supposed to be respectful, dignified, uh, his name in Hebrew is Aheshvarosh, okay? Aheshvarosh. You guys, I, I thought with all the babies we were having lately, somebody would finally name their kid, little baby, Aheshvarosh, but nobody did. Uh, in the story, we read his name as Xerxes because that's the, the way the Greeks said it. Uh, and that's honestly easier to get out of your mouth, okay? But uh, the king is, rather than dignified, he's just drunk pretty much the entire story. That, that's, that's Xerxes for you. That's the way he comes off. He's probably a brilliant general, but he's home from war right now, and he's drunk pretty much the entire time. Every time we see him, he's drunk. And that means, not so surprisingly, that he's kind of misogynistic, and not so surprisingly that he doesn't make very wise decisions, right? He does some foolish things throughout the course of the story. The heroine in the story for whom the book is named, Esther, doesn't really come off as particularly virtuous or spiritual. Um, she seems pretty worldly. Um, more than anything, though, and maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't, more than anything, the most glaring omission, the greatest problem of the book of Esther historically for the church is that never once, like in our passage today, does God come up. God is never mentioned. If you read the first chapter, which we didn't do this morning, God is never mentioned. If you read all 10 chapters of the book of Esther, you will never see the name of God. You will never hear even the vaguest sort of references to spirituality, to worship or prayer or something like that. You just don't hear it brought up. You don't even hear references to Persian gods which you might maybe expect. Maybe they've kind of like secularized. Maybe they've, they've moved on in this sort of syncretistic way to the worship of another culture's gods. We know that Israel did that a lot. But no, you don't even hear about Persian gods. And so the question the church has asked, and we kind of have to wrestle with in the book of Esther, is what is a godless book doing in the Bible? Like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is part of the reason the church said, it might have been easier for us if they had not handed this story down to us because we don't know what to do with it. Like, what conclusion are we left to make about the story? In the, the rush to write this story, among all of the other details, did they just forget? Did they just abs accidentally omit God's name? If you know anything about, about ancient culture, you know, like, that's ridiculous, that's bonkers. There's no such thing as atheism in the ancient world. That's like a modern notion. There's no such thing as like a secular worldview, the idea that this that we see is all there is. No, there's no such thing. They don't see the world that way. They don't understand it that way. 
They don't forget God. They don't ever see God as irrelevant to even the most ordinary story. They don't ever see spirituality as irrelevant. Everything is spiritual, right? It's pervasive in every aspect of their lives. So if that's true, that means if God isn't here in this story, it's not a mistake. If God isn't here in the story, we have to start asking the question, why would they do this and did they do it on purpose? Is this really just good storytelling? They know what they're doing. That's the thing we have to consider. It's not an accident. The absence of God from the story is meant to kind of jump off the page at you. That's the point. It's like the flashing neon arrow directing you toward the whole point they're trying to make with the story. That's what we miss. Here are the, the people of God living in a foreign land. They're living in Persia now. Remember, Persia has conquered Babylon, who once had conquered Israel. And by now, they could have gone home. Cyrus, another king of Persia, has told them, you are free to go. You can go back to Israel. You can go back to Jerusalem. And remember, a lot of people do. Ezra, Nehemiah, you know this story. They go back and they rebuild Jerusalem. They go back and they rebuild the temple. But lots of people, maybe even more, choose not to go. Because by now, places like Susa in Persia or in Babylon, like these places have become more home to them than Jerusalem. Esther's like us. I don't know about you guys. Like when people talk about going on like, you know, a tour of the Holy Land, I'm like, I think that would be rewarding and enjoyable. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think it's going to change my life. I don't feel like some intense draw because I wasn't born there. That's not my home. This is my home. I would never think, man, I would love to just go live there, right? To live where Jesus once lived, to be baptized in that river where he, like that's never been a draw for me. It's not home. They feel the same thing. Like, why would I need to go back there? Maybe they don't have the means to get back there. They don't know what to think of it. And as a result, they find themselves living as foreigners and feeling more like foreigners. They blend more in in Persia than they would in Israel, their supposed home. Their identity is kind of fading. Their purpose feels like it's fading. The promises that God made to them, they feel like they're fading. And, and God seems to be missing in the story of what is happening in their lives. That's the way it feels. But that's the whole point of this story. It feels like God is missing. God is never mentioned because that's exactly what they're experiencing. God is nowhere to be found. And yet, God is not missing. It feels like God is, is absent. And, and inevitably, there will be points in our lives where it feels like God is absent or hidden. And we will find that in those moments where God feels most distant, most absent, most hidden, this sometimes, very often, is where he is most present and working and we don't have eyes or sense to see it. Behind the veil of circumstance, God is actively working. This is what Esther is meant to teach us, that God masquerades in the ordinary details of our lives. That's one of the brilliant things about Purim. They all dress up, right? Because they remind themselves that, that Esther, she looked Persian. She dressed up. She wore the costume of a Persian. And no one knew, the wiser, that she was really an Israelite, a Jew. And so they remember that. They dress up. They remind themselves of this aspect of the story. But what's beautiful about the story of Esther is that it's God who is masquerading. 
in these seemingly ordinary kind of mundane moments of their lives where it feels like he's absent, where it feels like there's no purpose. God is not missing. Even in the darkest moments, God is not missing. But before you can kind of get to all of that, before you can get to the, the weight of the story, you kind of have to backtrack a bit to chapter one because I just kind of skipped over that conveniently, right? Here's the rest of the story. It doesn't begin with Esther. It does not begin with her cousin Mordecai, who becomes kind of like a hero in the story. It begins with Xerxes, the king. The first chapter is all about the glory and wealth and power of Xerxes, right? He wants it all to be on display. He needs everybody to know how powerful, how glorious he is, how wealthy and important he is. And so we're told, one of the details is that he, he begins a celebration that is to last 180 days, a six-month-long celebration, right? Most of which he's drunk, okay? This is Xerxes. At the end of this great banquet celebration, he comes to a seven-day celebration, a week where he's going to let people like you and me come and be a part, right? This has just been nobles who've been celebrating. The royals have been celebrating for six months. Now, at the end of it, people like you and me, the common folk, we get to come and enjoy. The plebes get to come for seven days and enjoy for a little bit. During the course of the seven days, we're told there are no restrictions. Everybody gets to drink as much as they want. It's an open bar for seven days. This is why we can't have nice things, guys. This is why we can't have nice things. This is, not, this is not a great idea. So again, Xerxes is drunk during the course of the banquet, and when he's especially intoxicated at one moment, he decides, I've shown everybody else my gold and my silver. They see how important I am, but they still haven't seen my most prized possession. They need to see Vashti. They need to see my wife, the queen. He wants everybody to see just how beautiful she is. And all in one moment, his glory fades, right? The whole picture of the first chapter is supposed to be showing you how glorious he is, right? He thinks he's incredible, right? And in a moment, a woman erases all of it because she refuses to show up. She says, nah, I'm good. I don't want to be gawked at by a crowd of drunk men. I'm going to stay here, right? There's a woman with modern sensibility. She's like the world's first feminist or something, right? She's not going to be gawked at. She's not going to be objectified. Forget you guys. Put some respect on Queen Vashti, I guess. Write her down as, as, you know, the real heroine of the story in the background. But as a result of her defiance, she's deposed as queen. Like, I mean, immediately he's done with her. She loses her crown and he decides she will never be allowed in his presence again. Her name never comes up in the story again. Like the sense you get is that maybe she's... She's killed in the whole thing. Maybe he doesn't. We don't hear that for sure. But she's gone. Vashti is no more. And this is where Esther enters the story, right? Esther, the, the, the one who the book is named for, shows up finally. Because the king decides he needs somebody else to gawk at. He needs arm candy. He needs somebody pretty. And so he declares a search kingdom-wide for the most beautiful women, right? And they will all compete for his hand in marriage to become the new queen. Again, like a guy with modern sensibilities, right? This, this all makes sense to us. It's the sort of thing that would entertain us. 
It's the sort of thing we might watch on television for 27 seasons. Guys, The Bachelor has been on television more of my life than not at this point. Over 20 years. That's, that's sad. Um, but either way, of all the things that have come and gone on television, how has that one not? But it's still here, right? And it all began with Xerxes. So Esther is one of these women. She comes in. She's given the spa treatment. She's given this whole new diet so that she can compete for the affections of the king, right? And she, unlike Vashti, she doesn't have such strong convictions about such things. She's like, I'm good with it. I'll participate in it. She competes for his affections. She goes along, plays the part. She disguises her ethnicity, her nationality, that she is a, a Jewish woman. She hides all of this. And she performs for the king in this little show, right? That's the way it goes. And we get the sense that Esther is willing to compromise on some of her morals in the whole process. We get the sense that this ain't one of those, like, Jewish kind of relationships. This is not kosher. She's willing to compromise on some of her convictions here. All of these women have. It's not one of those kinds of relationships. At this point in the story, Vashti is the heroine. Because at least she's got some conviction. At least she's got some courage, right? We don't know what her convictions are. I'm, I'm probably saying too much there. I don't know why she refuses to go before the king. I, can't, I can put words into her mouth, ideas into her mind. I can't say what she's thinking. But she is at least courageous. Because you don't stand up to a man like Xerxes without courage. That's a matter of life or death. And she chooses to do that. So at this point, like she's, she's the most impressive person in the story. So here's where we are. After a little recap, in the story of God's people, you hear us talk about this all the time. In the big picture, meta-narrative, the big story, God has promised something to his people from Genesis 12 on. He promises Abraham not just a land, not just descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He promises Abraham that those people of his will be a blessing to the nations, right? The prophets only renew this. They say it more and more. Isaiah 49, Israel is to become a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. They will bring salvation to these pagan nations, these idolatrous peoples all around them, right? It's a beautiful picture. God is going to do something incredible. There are all these promises, and somehow we've gotten here to some bizarre, uncomfortable episode of Love Island. We have Esther paraded around, dolled up for the king. And you have to ask the question, is this what God had in mind? Like, how did we get here to this sordid moment? There's no denying it. Esther is not like a model of morality. You would not use Esther to teach, you know, the children or the, the youth group how they ought to, to treat other people, how they ought to behave on social media, how they ought to, to pursue dating relationships. No, no, do not bring Esther into that. That's not what this book is about. Don't use it for that. That will never work. It's not a good idea. It's not what the story is about. And you might say, that's not what this is about. You can't do that. But that's generally how we read scripture. That's what we want to do with these stories we find here. We're always looking for the moral in the story. We're always moralizing. We're always looking for what a lot of times we call application. 
Like, that's generally where we want to get to, right? If you're reading, like, a devotional and they give you, like, a, you know, maybe it's 10 verses. You're like, okay, but what's the point, right? What do I need to, uh, what do I need to apply today as I go to work? Like, what do I need to do with this? This is the way we read the Bible. And it's not the way they wrote the Bible. That's the problem. We're looking for the steps I can take to become a better me, right? A better person. How can I distill down this beautiful, complex story into clever-sounding platitudes that I can decorate my house with? That's what I'm looking to do. That's what I need. How do I make this sound sentimental, memorable? And what Esther is reminding us is that this book is not about me. As if I need to be reminded, again, this book is not about me. It was not written for my self-improvement. It's not written about the glory of a king named Xerxes. It's not about Esther, this heroic woman. It's not about Mordecai, her cousin, a man of great conviction. It sounds silly that this would be a point in a sermon I would make or that I would feel like I need to make. The book is about God. That's not how we read it. We read it as if it's, you know, advice. But the story is about God. What God is doing in this broken world, what God is doing that we often don't see or recognize, how that God is transforming the whole of creation. He's transforming how his people look, who they are. He's transforming me, not that I am transforming myself with a healthy dose of like sage wisdom and good advice, right? That's the point of the story, but we tend to, to lean in the other direction. We tend to just want good advice, clever sounding platitudes, and Esther has nothing of that to offer you. So it's kind of easy to like breeze past Esther. Because all these people are violent and, and messed up. They're misogynistic and drunk. They don't exactly have a lot in the way of virtue or conviction. So how am I supposed to, to do that with it? Esther has none of that to offer you. That's not what this story is about. That's not what this book is about. And if we can get past that tendency, whether it's like when we're sitting here talking about this together, to like be like, yeah, but what's the point? What do I need to do? I need to do something, right? I need to, to become better. I have to walk away from here more enlightened, right? If you can get past that for just a second, that's where the story really gets good. The story gets good when we can set all of that aside. Because it turns out, as we read, Esther impresses everyone, right? She doesn't just look nice. People are drawn to this woman for other reasons. There is something about Esther. And Xerxes cannot resist, right? He chooses her. He wants her, right? And this is the moment, you know, all God's people said, aww. Right? That's what we're supposed to say right here, you know? But it's like, don't get too romantic about it. Like, this is not a romantic moment. That's not what's happening What's important about this is she's the queen now of an immense empire. A Jewish orphaned girl is now the queen of Persia. Like this is tremendous. She wields tremendous influence over this man Xerxes. And that's important because if he's drunk all the time, turns out you can convince him of a lot of things pretty easily, okay? And it's obvious how important all of this will be immediately. It, it, it comes to, to be evident because Mordecai 
discovers. I mean, he's just like a humble gatekeeper. Like he just sits at the gate. We don't know exactly what his job is, what it entails, but he's loyal. And Mordecai uncovers an assassination plot in the making. He realizes something is about to go down, right? He's become privy to all of this. But that's not going to matter because Mordecai is just a, a humble Jew. But because Esther has now come to this position of, of power and authority, well, now he has somebody who can take this troubling news directly to the king, right? And when she does this, when he tells her and she tells the king, it endears not just Esther to the king, but her cousin Mordecai, this father figure in her life. So now her family has become precious in the eyes of the king. So pretty quickly, right? Suddenly, what has felt like a very shallow and less than virtuous story now begins to take shape. You begin to make sense of something God might be doing, bringing people, his people, into this position of, of influence. Something's been stirring beneath the surface, right? God has been subtly, quietly moving. And the details are starting to align in such a way that you cannot deny it any longer. Though it seems like God is absent. Though he's never mentioned, it is only he that could do this sort of thing. It's undeniable. God is not missing. God has been masquerading in the ordinary all along. That's the picture of this story. There is this collection of events that is happening in Esther's life. Seemingly just a, a long chain of coincidences. That's the way we tend to talk about this sort of thing. That's our modern worldview. It's, it's all just a long list of coincidences. And that's not all that different from the way they saw the world. In Persia, this was like a, a very pervasive mindset. Oh, it's just, it's all chance. It's all fate. This is the way they saw it. Some things are just fate. Some things just happen. And they're using this intentionally. It looks like a, a chain of coincidences, and yet now all of them are connecting. It's all actually put, being put together, right? There's nothing coincidental about it. The further you get into the story, you can't deny it. You can't ignore it, right? Think about it, the details of the story. What seems like, you know, uncomfortable for us as Christian people sitting in church reading the story, right? Here's a, a drunk king. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, if the king doesn't get drunk and decide he wants to, to gawk at his wife with all of his friends, well, then Vashti can never stand up to him. And if she doesn't ever stand up to the king, well, then Esther's never given this opportunity to come into a position of, of influence, right? If that doesn't happen, then Esther never steps into it, right? If Esther is never paraded around and objectified, then she can never become queen. And if she's not in that position, then Mordecai, when he raises this accusation against two higher-ranking Persian officers as, you know, just a humble Jewish man, he's likely to find it falls on deaf ears. He's likely to be ignored, and that means the king likely dies, or maybe he survives, but he has no reason to see Mordecai for the hero he really wanted to be. He has no reason to value the life of Mordecai or, more importantly, the life of Mordecai's people. If Esther doesn't come into this position where she can show that she's trustworthy, she's not just pretty, she can be trusted, right? If she's not given that opportunity, well then, that moment that is coming in the story, and this is coming, 
when the people of God's very existence is threatened, when genocide is threatening them, Esther will have no voice and the king will see no value in those people. All of it begins to come together. What has seemed like just ordinary, mundane, worldly stuff, it would be meaningless if all of these things had not been happening, if God had not been working beneath the surface. All these years they've suffered, all these years they've been living in a foreign land with a fading identity, with a fading promise and a missing God. That would all feel meaningless and wasted. And yet in this moment, you begin to realize God masquerades in the mundane. This is who he is. This is his intent. And we are too deaf, too blind, too foolish to recognize it, too hardened by our circumstances to recognize that it's not wasted, it's not meaningless, that the promise is not gone. God is present. I think for a, yeah, for a, a lot of years, like this has been a big part of my story. And I think it's been a part of all of our lives at some point. I'm sure you can, can ima- like recall, excuse me, some moment in your life where that was true. Um, for me, like, if I'm using an, ex- an example that's, you know, relevant to all of us, For a lot of years, people would ask, you know, how how did you end up in Mosaic? Like, how did you end up with this church? And the way I used to tell the story uh, for a lot of years was about this. It it always included a late-night phone call that I got. Um, First few months I'm living in Birmingham, there's this late-night phone call from a guy I don't know very well, an acquaintance from seminary. And that's kind of how it went. And from there, God did what he did, right? It was just a, a random phone call. I don't know why it happened, but it did. And I remember... Uh, Just a few years back, I was in a car for about 12 hours with a friend of mine, who luckily I actually like. So he he was in seminary with me. We're in the car on the way to Austin, Texas. And somehow he asked about the early days of Mosaic. And I'm, you know, just like recounting some of the details of the story. And I say, yeah, it was just this random late night phone call asking if I would come and, and help out, lead worship. And he says, he interrupts me as I'm telling the story. He says, you know he called me first, right? No. If I knew that, I would have included it as a part of the story, dummy. Right? Like, obviously, I don't know that he called you first. That's why I thought the phone call was completely random. He says, yeah, he he called me first. He's like, I can't believe I never told you that. He called me first, and he asked if I could help. And I told him, you don't want my help. Like, I could do it and survive it, but Kyle is much more capable. You should just call him. Kyle's done this for, you know, a number of years. Just get him to do it. Here's his number. And as he's telling me that, it's beginning to all make sense. A story that for me just seemed kind of like random. Like, no. Like, maybe it doesn't happen if he doesn't answer a phone call that night, right? I have to see it as more than coincidence. Like, maybe I don't get a phone call if my friend is not looking out for me, right? Like, hey, Kyle would enjoy doing that. Kyle would be great for that. Why don't you just call him? It could never have happened. Maybe I don't ever get that call, right? And then I started thinking back even further, right? I started thinking about my roommate, (laughs) who is different than than me for sure. How Joel, sitting next to me in class one day, says, hey, they just asked for volunteers, you know, leading worship. You should put your name down. I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. I don't think I want to do that. (laughs) And he put my name down. Instead of me putting my name down. I found that out a couple days later when the, you know, the professor reaches out and says, hey, you're next. Maybe none of this happens if those people sitting in that class don't know. If, 
All of these things start to string together in such a way that I begin to realize there have been characters in my story that I didn't know about. There have been people pulling strings that I didn't know about behind the veil of my circumstances, behind the, the random, chaotic feeling moment of my life. God was doing something in what just felt very ordinary. God was masquerading. Even in something as simple as just a friend who said, nah man, not me, <laughs> call him instead. And it opened up the door for something so beautiful for me and for my family, right? There's a whole lot of joy, a whole lot of years that I have found here in this place just because of this ordinary thing that was happening. Esther helps us to see it, teaches us that we ought to focus a bit more, that we ought to recognize in the mundane and the ordinary and sometimes the, the chaotic and random aspects of our lives and say, surely God is at work behind the veil. There's always this veil that's hanging between us and God, it feels like. Our circumstances blind us, but behind the veil. This is the story of Esther. There is a God at work. And Esther's preparing us for those inevitable moments in our lives, preparing us for those inevitable moments in this story, in this book, when it will feel like the promise of God is gone. The promises are void. That God is missing. He has abandoned us. Esther is preparing us for that moment when the Savior himself will be missing, dead, in the ground. She's preparing us for that moment. This story is preparing us for what feels like an interruption in our lives, right? That's the cross. Here's this beautiful story that's being told. It's all about to crescendo, everything we've been longing for and hoping for, and now Jesus is dead. What am I supposed to do with that, a dead Messiah? What am I supposed to do with a naked, shameful creature hanging there on a cross? What am I supposed to do with that? It feels like an interruption. It feels like an aberration from the rest of the story, like something went wrong, some accident was made, somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do, God didn't do what he was supposed to do, surely not. There is no meaning that can come from this. There is no sense in this. Everything feels lost, random, and chaotic. And there's Esther whispering in our ear, no, behind the veil, there's a God who is masquerading in the ordinary, in what feels like nothing is happening, in what feels like God's absence. There's a God who's masquerading there, just waiting for us to see. And as the band comes this morning, and, and we partake of what feels like ordinary elements, right? Maybe you ask yourself the question. Maybe it comes up at some point. Maybe you feel this. You come to the table and maybe you're hoping sometimes that you'll walk away from the table feeling something different. Maybe you're hoping when you come to worship, you'll walk away feeling different somehow. Maybe that's what you've asked for. And it doesn't happen. And maybe you find yourself then asking the question, like, should I keep coming? Should I even bother? Why do we do this? Why do I need to drink this little cup? Why do I need to eat this piece of bread? And what is the point? It's this reminder every week that we come together, every time we worship, that we would be reminded every week of our lives, God masquerades in ordinary elements like these. God is present in these seemingly ordinary, mundane parts of our lives, and we just don't recognize it. God masquerades even in the cross even in the most painful moments. So as you come, be reminded, be encouraged 
allow God to kind of open your eyes. Like, make that your prayer. Enable me to see the ways that you are working. Enable me to see behind the veil. Give me clearer vision. Help me to anticipate that you are working in the places that I don't see. Let's pray. Father, I ask as, as we come to your table, yeah, that you'd heal us of our deafness and our blindness. That you'd speak in such a way that we could hear. And that we, rather than, than continuing to work at transforming ourselves, God, would find that your Holy Spirit at work in us is transforming us instead. That we'd open ourselves up to that. And we praise you for your goodness that you are at work even in the places when we don't see it that you've never been missing, that you've never been irrelevant to the details of our lives. You've always been masquerading in the midst of it all. Yeah, help us to see we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So feel free, as you come, you can come down the aisles, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup, and then move back toward your seats and just hold on to the elements, and then I'll come back up and, and lead us through.